Welcome to a Neon Jazz interview with hard bop jazz multi-instrumentalist Dr. Nathan Davis. Born in Kansas City, Kansas, this towering jazz talent plays the tenor saxophone, soprano saxophone, bass clarinet, and flute, and very notably has been the professor of music and the director of jazz studies at the University of Pittsburgh since 1969. Over a storied career, he has been playing with cats like Eric Dolphy, Kenny Clark, Ray Charles, Slide Hampton, and the great Art Blakey. During our interview, we talk about his legendary career and reflect on what else is left to accomplish on the eve of a special all-star evening at the Gem Theater, where he will receive the Lifetime Achievement Award, along with discussing much, much more. Dig it. Hello? Yeah, hi, Mr. Davis. Yes. Yes, it's Joe Domino with Neon Jazz. Yeah, okay, yeah. How does it feel to be back in Kansas City? Absolutely. So you were born in KCK. How did how did growing up in Kansas City, Kansas, cultivate a love of jazz in you? Well, first of all, uh, when uh, I'll give you a good example. When I got ready to write my dissertation, uh, my PhD dissertation at Wesleyan, mm-hmm. I decided to write it on Charlie Parker. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> so, no, the academicians couldn't say anything about that. That's what called premier source for real. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> yeah. That's great. Um, so talk to me about your family. How do they influence your desire to get into music and make music? Well, first of all, you know, my mother raised me. My mother and father were divorced uh, ever since I remember, you know, when I was a kid, they did. So I lived primarily with my mother, who was a gospel singer, and uh, she actually was a nurse by profession, but the love of gospel and sang in the church, and her heroes were Haley Jackson, you know, people like that, Clara Woolworth. And then uh, my father, I, did, I never really lived with anybody, he used to go visit him on the weekends, and he had a collection of jazz at the Philharmonic. And I used to listen to all of the great players. But when I finally made enough money to to, to, to buy me a, a Sears and Roebuck silver tone saxophone, I was about 16 years old. <laughs> and the, the um, neighbor on the left-hand side of where we lived, at 645 Troop in Kansas City, Kansas, was named Reverend Kidd. Mm-hmm. And he was a minister but a jazz lover. And so he heard me practice and then he brought me over. He said, come over. So <laughs> I said, do you want to be a saxophone player? I can hear that. Now you can practice. If you 
really want to be a great saxophone player. You have to play like these guys. And that's the first time I was exposed to Colton Hawkins, Don Bias, and Illinois Jacket. And the funny thing about it, I actually recorded and played with Don Bias in Paris. Mm -hmm. I played the same concert. I wasn't on the bill with him, but Coleman Hawkins, so I got a chance to meet him, you know. Yeah. And Illinois Jacket I played with on a couple of occasions. So it was from my, I got a chance to really play with all my heroes. <laughs> That's great. That's great. So speaking of, you know, heroes and big names, being in Kansas City, what was it like to play with Jay McShann? Was that a huge learning experience for you? Oh, yeah. I mean, I... I tell you, uh, my, again, my mother, uh, you know, I owe everything to her. Basically, she called up Marvel Piggy Meyer. I don't know if you remember that name. Mm -hmm. He was the trumpet player that played with Jay McShann. Yeah. And Fats Dennis was the tenor player. But anyway, she called up Marvel Piggy Meyer, and she said, this boy is just determined to be a musician, and he plays saxophone. So I want you to take him under your wing. So Piggy... <laughs> <laughs> Piggy took me out to jam with, with Jay McShann. At that time, it was out on 55th and Truth, I'll never forget it. And, you know, I had my little stuff together. I thought I was smoking. <laughs> and I'll never forget Jay McShann saying, Hey, Hoss, uh, we're going to do something here, you know. <laughs> he said, Ladies and gentlemen, we're a young man from over in Kansas City, Kansas. His name is Nathan Davis, and we're going to play a little church at you. One, two, one, two, three, four. It was the fastest tempo. I <laughs> and I remember I was baptized under fire. And I said, Lord, I'm going to get home and practice some more. <laughs> so that was my first introduction to Jay. And then after that, I actually played, you know, gigs with him and things like that. You know. Very cool. So. Yeah. So you've worked with the likes of Eric Dolphy, Kenny Clark, Ray Charles, Slide Hampton. When you share the stage with people like that, what's it like to be next to that caliber of playing? Well, I mean, first of all, you know, Kenny Clark would be my mentor and really hidden, if you want to call it, the big time. Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, I work, uh, they, 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 they actually have listed this in history before. I played with him more than any other tennis player in the history of jazz, you know. So, um, during the time at the Blue Note, on and off, for a period of seven years, I was I was the tennis player at the Blue Note with Club. And during that time, that's why I really decided to stay in Europe. I played with more musicians than you can think about because everybody that came to Paris from Stan Guest to Dizzy to the Modern Jazz Quartet to Earl Gardner whatever all wanted to play with the great Kenny Clark yeah and I was on I was the tennis player and I remember the first gig I had with him at the club Saint Germain de Pre every night I guess the cast was baptizing me <laughs> uh, I actually took Lucky Thompson's place so I, that's how I got that gig Gotcha. And what happened, one one night, and some nights all of them would come in. First night, Johnny Griffin would come in, play all night. Dexter Gordon would come in. Sonny Chris, because they were all in town, you know. And that, this is one, like the first week I lived. <laughs> and so, Kluke um, used to say to me, he said, Matt, don't play, pay any attention to them. You play what you play. Don't try to sound like them. Because he knew they were overpowering, you know, like 
influences. Sure. And somebody in that crowd is going to like you. And sure enough, people used to come to me after and say, we've heard these guys a lot, but you're a fresh voice, and we really like what you did, you know. Mm-hmm. And so that gave me confidence. And so, you know, playing with Bud Powell and, you know, I mean, I was there in those days, you know, it's kind of like the Beatles in Hamburg. We played from 10 o'clock at night to 4 in the morning. Wow. I mean, straight every night. Christmas, New Year's didn't make any difference, you know. Yeah. And so, I mean, I was really baptized, if you want to call it, a working, as a working musician, you know. Yeah. Not just somebody who copy a couple of records and then go out on the road and play one or two concerts. Sure. I mean, we were really working musicians. And that's the, that was what was great about Kansas City, too. At the time when I was growing up, Max Sheehan, you know, the Scamps, Five Scamps, I mean, I played with them, too. That was in the beginning. They all worked five nights a week, six nights a week, and matinees, you know. Hmm. Yeah. So you got to be good, you know. That's Absolutely. So what was it like to go from the United States to Europe at that age and to get immersed, as you said, baptized by fire? What was that like? It was really great. I mean, I was in the military first, and I met Joe Harris, drummer, played with, uh, with Bird and Diz, and, and then I met Benny Bailey. And, and the first gig, you know, first of all, I decided that, you know, why I had come back to the States, and I was in this all-army contest, and that's where I met Joe Henderson. And so the two of us became real tight. And one night in Berlin, we were walking the streets, and we said, hey, you know, what are you going to do when you get out of the military? And um, we both said we're going to stay in Paris and work with Kenny Clark and study with Natalie Boulanger. They studied harmony and stuff. And so we kind of made a pact on that. But Joe came, you know, he went on back to the States after that and got out and started playing with Kenny Dorham and everything. I actually did go to Paris yeah. <laughs> and play with Kenny Clark, but I didn't, didn't study with Natalie Boulanger. I studied with Andre Aubert, composition. Yeah. So that you know, it was a big, you know, a big, a big change because the thing was that you know I had a good solid foundation. You know, in Kansas City, there's a certain kind of swing that existed that really is in Midwestern thing that's different than any place in the country. I think. Yeah. And so the cats really liked me, and Kenny Clark liked me, you know. So basically, you know, I was the tennis player, and whoever showed up, I was there playing. I said, you know. That's cool. So it, it, this weekend's obviously a very reflective weekend on your career. And when you think from 65, from the album The Hip Walk, to 2003 with The Rules of Freedom, what albums did you grow the most? What are the most memorable albums over your career that you've been involved with? Uh, well, before that, you know, Happy Girl, that was the first album that I did in Europe for Saba MPS. Mm-hmm. That was before The Hip Walk. Mm-hmm. And that was, um, you know, when Eric Dolphy died, you know, uh, Mamory Carr came to me because, you know, I had kind of a big name there in Paris. And she said, we'd like to bring one of the guys that uh, Eric wanted to bring over. And we think maybe we'd bring over Woody Shaw. Well, I had never met Woody, but Eric had told me about Woody. Mm-hmm. And so I said, cool. She said, but nobody knows him. You have to headline, you know. So I, I'm the one that paid for Eric Dolphin. By the way, I'm the one that brought... Uh, Carmel Jones too to do that hip walk with him. That's how he got to Europe. Wow. And uh, so, and then 
I put in the half of the money, Madame Ricard, who owned the Shocky Pair, she put in half of the money for Woody Shaw, so we brought Woody over. So we did Happy Girl, and then after that, Woody was got lost, lost in the homesick after about three months. He said, I got, I'm going home and get, unless we bring my boys over, and that's how Larry Young and, uh, and Billy Brooks got over. And then we had uh, Jackie Sanson, who was African, Bass player born in front in Paris, you know, he was basically around and out. But we used Jimmy Woody on the record, Happy Girl. But Happy Girl, I think, was the first really breakthrough on my own because it, um, I don't know if you, if you research it in Der Spiegel, which is in Germany, the equivalent to Time magazine at that time here. Yeah. My record, Happy Girl, was voted the most, uh, was the, the most important and the, and the best-selling jazz import during that year. Wow. Yeah, so a lot of people over here don't know that, you know. But that was the breakthrough. And then with Woody, with Eric, I think, you know, a good example was I could work with, with Kluke and then Bud would come in and play sometimes and then did Lou Bennett and then whoever, you know, and then Donald Berg, we all were there. And then the next thing that happened was I'm playing with Eric Dolphin and we kind of going outside, you know, a little bit. So that, I remember Marshall Solon, French film, where he came in one night and he said, Boy, Nathan, you're really sounding good and different. And, and, but it was that combination of working, you know, not just one style, and I, but mixing the bebop with the hard pop with the free, you know. Absolutely. So I learned a lot, I think. That's cool. So, since since 1969, you've been at the University of Pittsburgh, um, an esteemed teacher and uh, director. Talk to me about how you feel about teaching, how important it is as a musician. Um, uh, how do you feel about that? Well, I, you know, by the way, 43 years of doing that, <laughs> <laughs> that makes me and David Baker the longest running guys in the world wow. as far as directing what we call curriculum jazz programs. Yeah. And one of the things that I think that somebody like David Baker or myself and Donald Bird would bring, brought to the table in the early years was the fact that we were, if you want to say, off the block. We played the clubs. We did, you know, what I told you. But we also got degrees, you know. And then I went on and got, you know, a PhD and Donald's a doctorate and so forth. And, you know, the thing was, we could bring that to the table. Yeah. And that's what I tried to do. But I think the thing that bothers me most when I look at it is a lot of schools see, uh, you know, I don't want to sound egotistical, but it's just the truth, you know, I... I was touring all the time, you know, I did the Paris Reunion Band, I did, you know, the Roots tours, and, and I kept doing stuff, you know, and kept playing at the university at the same time. Yeah. Well, in the early years, David Bacon and I talk about that all the time. Musicians used to put us down. Mm -hmm. You can't teach jazz, you know, yeah, don't give away the secrets and all of that. Now, everybody trying to get a job at the university. Yeah. So we, the David Baker, and you can check this out, Albert, myself, we, we were really the first 
guys doing that, you know, that came off the block, so to speak, and sure. put together curriculum for jazz programs based on real life performance experiences, you know. Yeah. And, and I think that's the big difference. Now you get guys that graduate with degrees and they've never been out there. Well, the chances, you know, they're not the same. I understand that. You have, you know, uh, how many clubs anywhere in New York and you worked five nights a week for 20 years or something, you know, or 10 years. They, they don't exist like that no more. Sure. Well, so a lot of guys can't get the experience. Well, and, and along with being a teacher, you would uh, you you uh, set up the first the Pittsburgh annual jazz seminar and concert, um, and there, there there's a long list of things that you've done there at the school. What are you the most proud of along with teaching? Well, uh, I guess uh, the last thing I did right before I left, I actually wrote a new curriculum for getting a PhD in jazz, which embodied composition, performance, uh, musicology, and ethnomusicology. All four of those disciplines are in that curriculum. Yeah. And I told Gerald I'm gonna send it to him, and David Baker, I sent a copy to David Baker and a copy to Billy Taylor for that. And uh, David said they're going to use that as a basis to try to do the same thing at the, at uh, Indiana. You, you know, before and when I got uh, my PhD, uh, you know, we had to do it in ethnomusicology. So when I went to the when I was at the University of Pittsburgh about the third year, I mean, uh, from sixth, yeah, fourth, third, fourth year, I set up, and, and I don't ever get credit for this. I'm the one that set up the jazz program, the ethnomusicology program, first of all. Mm-hmm. I wrote the curriculum. I passed it through, put the people together, you know, deans and everybody approved it, to start ethnomusicology. And my wife's always on me about this. She said, you started that, then you started the jazz program. Well, the reason why I did it, because there was no avenue to have a jazz program yeah. and get a degree. And so I said, okay, we're going to get the degree on the ethno." That's not was supposed to be a world music program. Jazz is world music, and that's, that was the rationale. Yeah. Interesting. So I'm proud of that. Very cool. So talk to me about the Paris Reunion Band. That sounds like that was a pretty pretty good era of, uh, well, of playing. Well, let me tell you about it. We, we, we ran into Art Blakey and the Jazz Messengers in the Canary Islands on a tour one time, and Art Blakey said that was the original uh, group with uh, me and Johnny Griffin, uh, Dizzy Reese and uh, Woody Shaw mm-hmm. and Kenny Drew and Jimmy Woody and then, you know, Fluke had died because he was supposed to be the original drummer of Philip Brooks. So that was the group we ran. We ran in Art Blake and an Art stopped and He said, damn, the parents of the union band, everywhere I go, you guys are burning it up. <laughs> tearing it up
four years or something like that. Five years. But then, then the second wave came when Johnny Griffin left, and I, I brought in uh, uh, Joe Henderson. And then we had uh, Benny Bailey and, and, and Woody together. And then uh, Kenny Drew was still there with that. And then Curtis Fuller came in. Yeah. And then Idris Muhammad came in. Yeah. yeah. So, and Jimmy Woody stayed. So that, you know, it, that, I mean, that's a pretty heavy company. And we made, I don't know, maybe seven, eight LPs and two or three DVDs, you know. So it was very successful. Absolutely. So you've rubbed shoulders with what the world would consider the finest jazz players of all time. If you could go back in time and meet one jazz musician that you haven't met or played with, who would it be and why? Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, without a doubt, Charlie Parker. I mean, you know, Charlie Parker, you know. I mean, I played with Dibs a lot, but not Charlie Parker. Yeah. I met, I, I, I couldn't say, no, I never met Charlie Parker. I was too scared. But when I was 17, <laughs> I was here, and, you know, I was into jazz, and Charlie Parker was there, right? So I went over to the El Capitan. That was the club at that time. I think it's a uh, historic monument now, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And I was too young to be in there. And I'll never forget, I went in about 8 or 9 o'clock for that set. And I had enough money for two beers. And I sat down. And I was just nursing the beer, and the girl came over to the waitress later. She said, honey, I know you're too young to be in here. But you got to buy another beer. And I said, well, that's all I got. When did Mr. Parker come in? And so the long the story makes the story short is that Charlie Parker didn't show up to 12 o'clock. Wow. I'm nursing that beer. And all of a sudden, he runs in just like that, just walks into the airport. People waited. And he walks in, he plays, now's the time, uh, Dewey Square, and I think Just Friends, Three Tunes or something. Uh-huh. Put his horn, and I'm mesmerized, and he walks right up to me, you know. I know all these stories about him from, from Jay McShann and Big and Matt and everything. And I wanted to say something, and he's kind of stopping talking to people, and they walked out. And then I said, well, I'll talk to him when he comes back and introduce myself to see. He never came back. Wow. One o'clock, he just never showed back up. <laughs> so that was the closest I got to him. Wow. That's a great story. So, so, again, the theme here is a reflective weekend with the Lifetime Achievement Award. Do you, do you have any regrets at all about your career? No, none. I think I've been very blessed. Very cool. Uh so, what's the last album you listened to? The last album that I listened to? Yeah. Oh, I, I mean, uh, you know, I don't really, I listen to Miles all the time. Mm-hmm. You know, just different records. From, and I like the stuff with Gil, you know, Miles and Gil. I, I really do like that. And, but I listen to a lot of, I'm, now I listen to a lot of classical music. I don't know if you know, if you know that, but I've I've written a, a full scale opera that premiere. Yeah. Uh, and then I've written a 
the four symphonies and so forth. And now I'm writing the ballet. So I'm listening to a lot of ballet music. So Stravinsky is the real stuff I've been listening to. It's cool. Petrushka, you know, right to spring. Yeah. So is, is somebody that's so learned in jazz, define jazz for me in a concise way. What do you think jazz is? I think it, it well, basically I've written a textbook, uh, writings in jazz, and I talk about that defining jazz in there. Uh, it's an improvised type music that is built on the blues. And the, the reason why I say that, if you just say improvised music, there are a lot of improvised music, you know, in different cultural areas will not but be class, could not be classified as jazz. And it must be rooted in the blues. Because I remember Johnny Griffin used to tell me, he was you know, one of my mentors. He said, whatever you play, play the blues in it. If it's Cherokee, you play, you know. Mm -hmm. If it doesn't have that blues sound just because it's improvised, doesn't mean it's jazz. That's improvised music. But if it's got the blues in it, then it's, it's jazz. And... If you really look at what, and I learned this from, from Javen and McShannon years ago, when they had that band, you know, Hootie's Blues, that was this big thing, you know, and Charlie Parker and those guys, when they were playing around here, they played what we all played, Chicken Shack music, you know, <laughs> you played the blues, and, yeah. and then you, you know, you, you played the bebop on top of it sometimes, you know, but, it, you know, the, the territory band, blues, yeah. Thank you, sir. Have a great time uh, tomorrow night. Well received, and, and good luck in the future, sir. All right. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening and tuning in to yet another Neon Jazz interview, a very special one with Dr. Nathan Davis, where we give you a bit of insight into the finest players in Kansas City and all over the USA, giving fans all that jazz. Congratulations to Dr. Davis for his stellar achievements and for his time and insight into his craft and the jazz world. If you want to hear more interviews, go to Famous Interviews with Joe Domino on the iTunes Store or visit theneonjazz.blogspot.com for all things Neon Jazz. Until next time, enjoy the music, my friends. Neon Jazz.